Well, if you'd like to uh, grab your Bibles out, and we're going to turn to Nehemiah 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through to 13 this morning. If you don't have a Bible handy, you can follow along with me on the, uh, the screen too. So Nehemiah 5, commencing at verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as of their children. And yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel of myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. And so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Or do not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labour who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly, all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of God. Gracious Father, as Jeff has already uh, reminded us and prayed this morning, we do ask now that we would have attentive hearts and ears to hear what you might say to us uh, from your word today. Lord, uh, help uh, us all not just to uh, hear and learn this truth, but very much apply it to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here in this particular chapter of Nehemiah, what we find is that he is faced with an incredibly challenging situation there amongst the people of God where he needs to actually confront and challenge some of his fellow Jews about their sinful behaviour. Not an easy thing to do for anyone, particularly for a leader. What he wants them to do is he wants them to repent of their sin, he wants them to obey God's commands in order to do the right thing towards their fellow countrymen, even though it may mean that they've got to give up some of their own comforts in order to do it. The thing is, though, if Nehemiah doesn't succeed in this, 
then the whole project of rebuilding the wall and the gates of Jerusalem will be in jeopardy. Everything that Nehemiah had hoped to achieve for God and for God's glory and for the benefit of God's people will be undermined. And so for Nehemiah particularly, the stakes are incredibly high here as he seeks to confront the people and challenge them in this area. And the issue that he needs to do that in is simply this, that there are those amongst the people of God, those amongst his fellow Jews who are having to endure incredible hardship due to their commitment to the rebuilding of the walls and gates of the city. In verse 2, we see that uh, there are many of the families who are in fact going hungry. These people who had committed their time and efforts and energy to rebuilding the walls and the gates, they weren't then out earning a living during that time. They were instead you know, working for God in that place. And so because they weren't earning a living, they weren't able to uh, you know, put food on the table of their families. They were making significant sacrifices and for their efforts... They were struggling and suffering. And to make matters worse, what we also see is that some of their own richer countrymen were taking advantage of their particular predicament and seeking to exploit them in that. We see in verses 3 to 5 that there were those who were basically um, you know, charging interest. They were, they were buying these, uh, these people's properties and things like that and then uh, loaning them money but then charging interest on that money as well. They were also, uh, you know, people were having to borrow money in order to pay the king's taxes on their land. The king in that day particularly, uh, you know, exacted a tax from all of his subjects. And unfortunately, that tax wasn't then ploughed back into those local communities. It was actually kept for the king and for his own lavish lifestyle and things like that. And so the people, you know, here they were, they were sort of having to, to sell property and things like that in order to, uh, to pay the king's taxes. And the people who were, uh, you know, sort of loaning the money, again, were charging them interest and in exorbitantly high um, levels of interest at that. We see at the same time there's a famine in the land, so there's really not much of, you know, of things to go around either. And so people are really struggling. And, and Nehemiah can see that these people are just about ready to revolt. They're ready to revolt and give the whole thing away. And they're incredible, there's, a, there's an incredible amount of, of disunity and disharmony amongst the people of God in that place because they're not treating each other the way that God would want them to treat each other, and that is with love and with grace and mercy and kindness. Of course, this practice of loaning interest was quite common in that day as it is in our own days today. But God had expressly forbidden his people from, from charging interest on loan money. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 19, he says, he commands his people, do not charge your brother interest whether on money or food or anything else that might earn interest. And so we see these people were, uh, were not obeying God in how he wanted them to treat their own brothers. As we can see in this passage too, what we see here that, uh, you know, that some of the people are saying, you know what, you know, aren't we just as important as, as, as these other Jew, Jewish people? He said, they say in, uh, in verse 4 there, it says that, uh, you know, aren't our own children? Sorry, verse 5, it says, now our flesh is of the flesh of our brothers. In other words, we're the same people. Our children are as their children. Why should one section, why should we then suffer when they don't? 
No wonder there was a great outcry and this pleading for justice and mercy amongst the people. And it had come to Nehemiah. The people had had enough. And the question po- you know, sort of posed to Nehemiah in this is, is, is simply this. How do you get people to do the right thing? How do you get people to, do and to, to obey God in what God wants? You know, in society today, there are usually one of two methods that are employed in order to get people to follow certain standards and patterns of behaviour. They're the practice of reward or threat. We see it in our own judicial system. If you do the right thing, then, you know, everything's cool. But if you don't, you step out of line, then you get punished. One of these results, or sorry, I should say that you know, we, we talk about reward or threat. It's otherwise known as the carrot or the stick. Your parents probably have employed these kind of methods with your own children over the time. One results in pleasant circumstances, the other results in unpleasant ones. One is based on favour, but the other is based on fear. Now, as we look at Nehemiah's response here this morning... In verse 6, it says, Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And Nehemiah had every right to be. And in fact, where there is injustice and evil and that sort of thing, then that is indeed the right response. In fact, it is God's response. Bill got up here this morning and spoke about these, uh, you know, these children and these families about getting a fair wage for you know, so, uh, harvesting cocoa and that sort of thing so the rest of the world can enjoy their chocolate bars. The reason we, you know, we, we focus on that and we, we highlight that is because of the fact that there is an injustice going on when we ourselves benefit from these kids who are in slavery and these families who just basically live well below the poverty line. And the way we, we, get, uh, we get upset about it is because God is upset about it. God is sad and angry at the injustice that goes on in our world. If you go read through the, the Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament prophets, you see that they were constantly preaching against oppression and injustice amongst, the, amongst God's people. Jesus himself got angry when there was injustice and oppression. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, there's a story of this man who's in, in a synagogue with a withered hand and it's, and it's on the Sabbath. And here they've got these religious leaders on the day and they're there watching Jesus. And what they wanted to see is whether or not he's actually going to obey the law. And the law, the Jewish law in that day was that no one worked on the Sabbath and work meant actual healing. If someone healed on the Sabbath, that was work. And Jesus confronts these, these, these people and he says, you know, what is, it, what is more lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm? And the Pharisees are silent. And Jesus is angry. He's angry at their hard-heartedness. In fact, he's angry at their cold-heartedness because they would rather impose these rules so, so harshly on, on, on a person who's in this incredibly difficult position. With a withered hand, he couldn't work, he couldn't earn a living. And Jesus says, you haven't even got that kindness and that love in your own hearts to say, you know what, the most important thing, the best thing that could be done in this situation, Jesus, is for you to heal this man, that he might experience that wholeness 
in, you know, and, and, and blessing of his God you know, in that situation. But instead they're silent. And Jesus is angry. And it should be that, Christian, that, that, that our right, a Christian's response to sin and injustice and oppression and evil is indeed a righteous anger towards these things. We should, we should be angry in all kinds of contexts in our world today. But the Bible says that in our anger, though, we are not to sin. That's a toughie, isn't it? That's a tough one. Nehemiah could have gone off immediately and accused these people of their terrible behaviour. He could have gone and sought to exact vengeance and punish them for their evil ways. But instead we see it says, I took counsel with myself. In other words, he just basically just got away by himself and just considered and thought the process through and thought the whole issue through. And I think he would have most likely prayed a lot about what to do in this situation because we've seen all through Nehemiah, he's a man of prayer. You know, seeking immediate vengeance might have made him and it might have made the people feel better, but all that would have done would be to divide the people even further. Their behaviour would have been just as sinful as those of whom they as those who were taking advantage of them. The thing is here, folks, and with situations like this, we usually sin when we allow our anger to get the better of us and to use it as a means of gaining revenge, of making ourselves feel better in the situation. But God says a righteous anger, a godly anger, needs to be certainly pointing out what is wrong, but then directed towards redemption, restoration, healing and change. That's the difference. It's not about evening up the scales but about seeking righteousness and redemption and restoration and healing. So instead of seeking to exact vengeance, Nehemiah chooses another tactic and he seeks to appeal to a more highest, a more virtuous approach. We see that in verse 9 of our passage this morning where he says, you know, the thing that you're doing is not good. But then he says this, he says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? See, in this passage, Nehemiah uses that term fear in order to get the people to cooperate, but he uses it in a way that we find it a bit surprising. Because for this, fear actually results in pleasant circumstances, not distasteful ones. Nehemiah calls the people to change their behaviour by saying, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Now, there are those who might understand this term or this phrase, fear of God, to be actually be taking on the form of a threat. He might take his words to mean that God, and this might be your picture of God, that God is like some mean and vengeful kind of deity who's looking to punish anyone who steps out of line. And when I was growing up, my dad, he had a fearsome temper. And you did everything possible, everything that you possibly could, not to rile him up in any way, shape or form. Because if you did, you knew that you were going to cop it. And in fact, even the most slight thing would mean that you would be severely dealt with. 
Some people think that God's like that. And yes, God does hold us accountable for our actions. He does hold us accountable for our sin. He is a God who promises to punish sin. But he is also a God who loves us so much that he provided a way, a means for our sins to be paid for in a way that we could avoid God's holy righteousness and wrath. The Christian faith is all about proclaiming the fact that God in the person of his son Jesus came to earth and died in our place, taking our sins upon himself and dying the death that we deserved, but then rising again to prove that his sacrifice was a sufficient sacrifice to pay for that sin. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says this, For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, that is God the Son, Jesus Christ, to be sin. Even though he knew no sin, even though he was sinless, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God or we might be actually made righteous in the sight of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that is us, in order that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. And 1 John 4.10 says that in this is love. You want the greatest example of love? Let me tell you. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. In other words, to be the one who would come and die in order to take that righteous anger of God upon himself so that we could avoid that. That word propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of God completely. Nehemiah's use of the term fear, though, is not about the fear of threat. It is centred around encouraging the right response in the people's hearts based not on fear of retribution, not based on any other thing, but purely based on a deep love and respect for God and a cheerful submission to him and his ways. That's what Nehemiah is trying to get across to the people here when he says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? He's not saying, you know, we we fear because of a broken relationship, because we are sinners and God's a holy God and and therefore the relationship is broken and God is going to punish us. But instead, he's calling us to, to respond in a fear of the Lord, a fear that is a recognition and a reminder of a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that God has done everything possible to have our sins forgiven and to bring us into fellowship with him. This phrase, the fear of God, or this theme, is such a central theme of the Bible. It speaks of of having an awe, a reverence, an honour, and a worship of God because he is God. He alone is God. He's the only God. There is no one like him. There is no one like him in, in, in anything, in all of creation. He alone is exalted in all his power and his majesty and his glory. And along with that, Nehemiah is saying there's also the recognition that God is perfect and right and just in all his ways and that his ways 
uh, for our good and for the good of others. And so therefore, the fear of God should, should be as a result of our love for him. And then that love is then extended to the ones whom God himself loves. You know, when asked by a person in the crowd, when Jesus was asked by a person in the crowd what the greatest commandment was. Now, here is this person who was obviously, you know, keen on, on fulfilling the law of God and, and, and being right with God. And he says, you know, he says to Jesus, you know, what is the greatest commandment? What is the one that I should really focus on the most in order to earn God's favour? And Jesus responds simply by saying this. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and then to love your neighbour as yourself. See, our love for God is expressed in showing love for our fellow human beings, our fellow men. 1 John 4.20 says this. It says, If anyone says, I love God which the Pharisees would have done, by the way, in that context of Jesus and the man with the withered hand. If anyone says, I love God, but yet hates his brother, doesn't want to see his brother healed or you know, restored or anything like that, but would rather the, the, the law is upheld than people are helped. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, a straight-out liar. Jesus couldn't make it any more plain, could he? So if we say we love God and yet show hatred to one another, then Jesus says, you know what? You're a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen can certainly not love God whom he has not seen. So Nehemiah says to the people, he calls them together. He says, after I took counsel myself, he says, he brings, he says, I, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. He brings the people face to face with one another and then confronts them, not just on the legalities of the situation that you've done wrong, but more so, he confronts them based on their relationship. He says, you have done wrong. You have, you know, you've, you've exacted interest each from his brother. His brother. Now, this appeal that Nehemiah uses there, this, this appeal to the superior motivation of love for God and love for fellow man, still doesn't stop him from confronting the people with the truth. He says in verse 9, what, they, what you are doing is wrong. What you are doing is wrong. In fact, he says it's not good. So Nehemiah here, he appeals to this internal motivation rather than an external one. And what he wants to see the people doing is to do the right thing because they want to obey God out of a desire to please him because they love him so much. Not because they're afraid of what the consequences might be. Now children, if I can have your ear just for a minute... Your parents 
seek to love you and make incredible sacrifices for you on a day-to-day basis. And your parents seek your best, generally speaking. When your parents ask you to do something, when they ask you to do something, you have three options. Option one, ignore what they say at your peril. Yes? Ignore what they say at your peril? Yes, definitely. Two, do what they say, but with a poor attitude. Oh, okay. If I have to. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Can I say, folks, children, there is a third option. There is a third option, and that option is to do so willingly and gladly and cheerfully because you love your mum and dad and by obeying them, you show your love for them and also, more importantly, you show your love and your respect for God whom has given you your parents to to care for you and nurture you and look after you. And no, that's not just aimed at my child or children. (laughs) All of us have got those three options when it comes to obedience, haven't we? Refuse to do it at our peril. Choose to do it but begrudgingly. Or we choose to obey out of reverence and awe for God because as the people of God, we love him so much. And we want to please him so much in our lives that nothing is, is too much of a sacrifice for God in, in, in any aspect of our lives. And that means showing love to his people. And that's what Nehemiah is saying here. Shouldn't the fear of our God, our love for him and our desire to want to please him foremost, shouldn't that motivate us to be better than this and to treat each other better than what these people were treating each other here in the scriptures? It's interesting that in this chapter there is incredible contrast. In verses 1 to 13, there is this focus on the people's um, greed and selfishness. But then in verses 14 to 19, it flips it over and it speaks about Nehemiah and his generosity. So there's there's meant to be a, see, you're meant to see a contrast here in this chapter between two approaches. And what we see in Nehemiah is this, is that, as one commentator puts it, Nehemiah does not perform tasks in the fear of our God. In other words, he's not just about, you know, just doing stuff because of the fear of the God. It speaks about the fact that he lives in the fear of the Lord. You know, see the difference? Not just performing tasks, but actually living in the fear of our God. In other words, it is a characteristic posture of his daily life. It is not done out of drudgery or duty, but it is done as his absolute delight. 
Because what we see in Nehemiah's life, in fact, right the way through this book, we see that Nehemiah's priorities are God's priorities. And for the people of God, if we call ourselves the people of God, then our priorities need to be God's priorities too. Now, Nehemiah may jump off these pages to you as some extraordinary kind of individual who in many of our eyes we could never hope to be like. But the fact is that Nehemiah, we have seen, it was just an ordinary man who became extraordinary because of his commitment to God. The fact that Nehemiah had chosen, he'd made it a decision of his will to always or to seek to always walk in the fear of his God. One commentator likened Nehemiah to another person in, uh, in more recent history, a lady called Corrie Ten Boom. Some of you might know her. She was a Jewish, like her and her Jewish family had actually sought to protect Jewish people from the Nazis in World War II. In other words, hide them away from the Nazis. And, and they had, you know, had basically protected a number of people over the years. But when faced with the, the, the initial decision to do that, when faced with the context of what was happening to these Jews, what the Nazis were doing to them, her prayer was simply this. Lord Jesus, I offer myself for you and your people in any way, in any place, and at any time. Here was a lady who walked in the fear of our Lord, who walked in the fear of her God. So I ask us all this morning, I ask you each individually, what about you? What about you? Are you prepared to pray a prayer like that? Because walking in the fear of our God should indeed be the normal thing for us as his children, as his disciples. But a true fear of God is not a true fear unless we are prepared to do that which we would perhaps not ordinarily do that we would actually be prepared to make sacrifices for God that we wouldn't ordinarily like to make. Throughout Scripture, we see that many of God's people face situations and circumstances that they may not have naturally embraced, but they did so faithfully because they feared God. And perhaps right even now, God is wanting you to do something which is hard and means paying a significant cost. And the question is today, for, for all of us, do we love God and trust him enough to say, yes, Lord? Do we love him enough and trust him enough to say, yes, Lord? Because ought we not to walk in the fear of our God? Let's pray. As I pray, if the communion stewards would like to come as we prepare our hearts for that. Lord, as we ponder on these verses here in Nehemiah 5 this morning, Lord, those words really stand out particularly to me, but I hope to all of us in all of our hearts, those words are, ought we not to walk 
in the fear of our God. And we've heard this morning that that fear is not a, a terror, terrifying fear, but indeed a fear that, Lord, that we would do that which displeases you. For we want to be people who indeed please you in all that we do. And if we this morning claim to love you, Lord, then that love means that we need to not only love you, but love your people and love those around about us. Lord, help us this morning to just reflect upon these, these words and perhaps look into our own hearts to see how well we are walking in the fear of our God this morning. What is the trajectory of our lives right now? Is it more towards you or is it more away from you? Do I get my pleasure from serving you and pleasing you, Lord, or do I get my pleasure from pleasing myself and serving myself? Lord, help us to walk each and every minute of every day in the rightful, in the rightful fear of you, our good and gracious and merciful and compassionate and good God. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. As we gather around this community table this morning, it's a good opportunity for us to be reminded afresh of God's love for us. That even though we're reminded in Romans 5 that even though we were sinners in rebellion towards God, refusing to bow our knees and our wills to God, God in, in, in his love reached out with everything he had in himself through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and gave it all for you and me in order that our sins can be forgiven and we can be restored to this, in this beautiful relationship with him and to walk in that relationship day by day, confident of knowing that we are indeed the objects of God's love, even when we fail. That's what this table speaks about this morning. And if you've come to that place in your own hearts and said, Jesus, I love you, and I recognise that, that my love for you can never, ever be as perfect as, as you require it to be. And yet, Lord, you have met that perfect standard in my place. And as I trust in you, that you welcome me in, you forgive my sin, you cleanse me, you restore me, you, re you heal me. So today, if you're at a point in your life where perhaps right now you're not walking in that fear of God the way that God, you know God would want you to, you can come to this table this morning and say to Jesus, I'm sorry. And say to Jesus, help me. Help me to love you more. But you can also thank Jesus and say, I thank you for the fact that you've forgiven me for my failures and all my wrongdoings. And thank you for the new life and the new hope that you have given me in my life.
So if that's how you approach the table this morning, I invite you to partake of the elements, to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup this morning. And in those quiet moments, to just silently come before God and say, God, help me to be the person that you have saved me to be. Help me to be that person, Lord. And when I fail, Lord, help me to forgive. Help me to receive forgiveness. Lord, today we all stand before you as sinners. Lord, guilty in and of ourselves. But yet in you, we can find forgiveness and new life. We can start afresh. And so we now partake of these elements, the bread and the, and the cup, reminding us of the life that is found only in Jesus Christ, this kind of life. And we praise you and thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.